Mary Wollstonecraft and the Rights of Woman Controversy Revolutionary, Atheist, and Slut These were some of the terms applied to Mary Wollstonecraft. She was an extremely controversial figure condemned by the public for both her intellectual writings and her personal behavior. She had two very public love affairs with the Swiss painter Henri Fuseli, who seems not to have returned her affection, and with the American revolutionary figure Gilbert Imlay, to whom she bore a daughter out of wedlock. She attempted suicide twice in despair over Imlay's philandering. She had an affair with the radical philosopher and novelist William Godwin, and when she became pregnant, Godwin married her to spare her some of the public condemnation she had endured previously. As mentioned before, their child was Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, later to become Mary Shelley. But Wollstonecraft died a few days after her daughter's birth due to complications from childbirth, a fate seen by many as divine punishment for her writings and her lifestyle. A vindication of the rights of men from 1790 was inspired by the French Revolution and Edmund Burke's reflections on the revolution in France in particular. A vindication of the rights of woman from 1792 extends the rights debate to private relationships between men and women. Wollstonecraft argues, much of this in Chapter 12, for public education of women and men together, rich and poor alike, that is, with no distinctions among social classes, which she refers to as rank, and which she denounces in Chapter 9. She felt that students should be dressed alike, school uniforms essentially, that the curriculum should include exercise, that is, physical education, and that the same subjects should be taught to both men and women, natural history, science, history, math, literature, religion, politics, and trades, the latter after age nine. This was all at the time when upper-class women were typically taught a smattering of various subjects, including literature, needlework, drawing, singing, playing the piano, dancing, a modern language which was usually French but sometimes Italian, and perhaps classical Latin. We will see some of this when we read Jane Austen's Emma later in the course. But smattering is the key word here, and Wollstonecraft herself uses the word in her introduction to the vindication when she says this about female education in the late 18th century, quote, The education of women has, of late, been more attended to than formerly. Yet they are still reckoned a frivolous sex and ridiculed or pitied by the writers who endeavor by satire or instruction to improve them. It is acknowledged that they spend many of the first years of their lives in acquiring a smattering of accomplishments. Meanwhile, strength of body and mind are sacrificed to libertine notions of beauty, to the desire of establishing themselves, the only way women can rise in the world, by marriage. And this desire, making mere animals of them, when they marry, they act as such, children may be expected to act. They dress, they paint, and nickname God's creatures, 
Surely these weak beings are only fit for a seraglio. Can they be expected to govern a family with judgment, or take care of the poor babes whom they bring into the world? End quote. Notice here her reasoning that if women are only passive and obedient, how can they manage a family or educate children? Let's look at some more of her key concepts. While Stonecraft acknowledges the physical superiority of males in nature, but argues that men endeavor to sink us still lower, mainly to render us alluring objects for a moment, and women intoxicated by the adoration which men, under the influence of their senses, pay them, do not seek to obtain a durable interest in their hearts or to become the friends of the fellow creatures who find amusement in their society. End of quote. She urges women not to be objects of contempt by compounding natural physical weakness with artificial weakness. In other words, she argues that feminine weakness is something that is taught rather than a natural attribute. In chapter 2, she discusses some excuses for masculine tyranny and arguments about feminine inequality. Notice again that for Wollstonecraft, inequality is taught, it's not natural. Love is for youths. True companionship for her is based on reason and friendship. She argues here and throughout that what really separates humankind from the animals is this capacity for reason. Love, according to Wollstonecraft, is only temporary, and she takes issue with the word natural being applied to women, as in the example that women have a natural fondness for clothing. She states that, quote, gentleness, docility, and a spaniel-like affection are consistently recommended as the cardinal virtues of women, end of quote, and that according to the prevailing wisdom, woman was created to be the toy of man, his rattle, and it must jingle in his ears whenever dismissing reason he chooses to be amused. Wollstonecraft says that the woman who has only been taught to please will soon find that her charms are oblique sunbeams and that they cannot have much effect on her husband's heart when they are seen every day when the summer is past and gone. Just a few sentences later, she says, when the husband ceases to be a lover and the time will inevitably come, her desire of pleasing will grow languid or become a spring of bitterness, and love, perhaps the most evanescent of all passions, gives place to jealousy or vanity. In other words, she is saying that love and the passions will not endure, and there has to be a basis in something more than just physical attraction. She continues to develop this line of reasoning further. Quote, Friendship or indifference inevitably succeeds love. Passions are spurs to action and open the mind, but they sink into mere appetites, become a personal and momentary gratification when the object is gained and the satisfied mind rests in enjoyment. The man who had some virtue whilst he was struggling for a crown often becomes a voluptuous tyrant when it graces his brow, and when the lover is not lost in the husband, the dotard 
a prey to childish caprices and fond jealousies, neglects the serious duties of life, and the caresses which should excite confidence in his children are lavished on the overgrown child, his wife. Unquote. While Stonecraft is drawing an analogy here between a man pursuing a woman and a man trying to gain a crown, these passions may motivate him to action, but once his goal is achieved, they sink into mere appetites. The king may become a tyrant who lives a life of excess. The husband may become prey to his own jealousies, and his childish affections cause him to neglect his more serious obligations. Or, when the passions fade, he could grow tired of her, an overgrown child, after all, and lapse into bitterness toward her. Wellstonecraft argues that a more fulfilled relationship between men and women would be one based on true friendship between equals, with women being sufficiently educated to be able to engage men in rational conversation. Let's look now at one of the responses to Wollstonecraft's Vindication of the Rights of Woman by Hannah Moore. Moore's book, Strictures on the Modern System of Female Education, was published in 1799. And note that the word strictures just means critical remarks or restrictions. We met Hannah Moore previously when we discussed her play Village Politics, a piece of anti-revolutionary propaganda. Here, Moore provides a conservative view of gender roles, although this is not a simple black-and-white pro-con binary. Moore came from a conservative high-church family, but she was an evangelical and an opponent of slavery. She was in favor of the education of women and was an advocate of reading, but only in moderation. Her many remarks on the adverse consequences of novel writing and the proliferation of novels and novelists were very common at this time. This passage is fairly typical. I would not, however, prohibit such works of imagination as suit this early period. When moderately used... They serve to stretch the faculties and expand the mind. But I should prefer works of vigorous genius and pure, unmixed fable to many of those tame and more affected moral stories which are not grounded on Christian principle. I should suggest the use, on the one hand, of original and acknowledged fictions, and on the other, of accurate and simple facts, so that truth and fable may ever be kept separate and distinct in the mind. End of quote. One of the concerns during this period, as the reading public expands significantly, was that women would waste time doing too much reading, and there was also a real concern that women would lose the distinction between truth and fiction. Reading too much, it was feared, might arouse women's imaginations too much and cause them to neglect their families and perhaps even leave their husbands. Moore gives us a diatribe about novel writers, quote, Who are those ever-multiplying authors that, with unparalleled fecundity, are overstocking the world with their quick-succeeding progeny? They are novel writers, the easiness of whose productions is at once the cause of their own fruitfulness and of the almost infinitely numerous race of imitators to whom they give birth. Such is the frightful facility of this species of composition that every raw girl, while she reads, is tempted to fancy 
that she can also write, end quote. This is a common complaint from the period. Women are spending too much time reading novels, but because there were a number of successful women novelists at this time, there was also much anxiety that women who read too much would become inspired to become novel writers themselves, wasting even more time and further adding to this endless proliferation of imitations. In Chapter 14, Hannah Moore articulates the prevailing view on gender differences. Women should study to be helpers. They're better at the practical side of life. They shouldn't compete with men and struggle for power. They should file off the rough angles of men. Moore's views here are consistent with the Victorian concept of separate spheres, in which men are meant for the public sphere of business, government, and science, while women are meant for the private or domestic sphere of the home, raising children and giving them the moral training that is the backbone of the British Empire. Moore says, for example, that each sex has its proper excellences, which would be lost were they melted down into the common fusion of the new philosophy. By new philosophy, more here means the philosophy of equality advocated by Wollstonecraft. More is in favor of the education of women, but she really wants to see the sexes maintain their separate spheres or roles. A very important point is the the distinction that more draws between the cognitive abilities between men and women in an important passage from chapter 14. This passage reads in part, quote, Both in composition and action, they, that is women, excel in details, but they do not so much generalize their ideas as men, nor do their minds seize a great subject with so large a grasp. They are acute observers and accurate judges of life and manners as far as their own sphere of observation extends, but they describe a smaller circle. A woman sees the world, as it were, from a little elevation in her own garden, whence she makes an exact survey of home scenes, but takes not in that wider range of distant prospects which he who stands on a loftier eminence commands." End of quote. Let's unpack this argument, which, though strange to our ears, was actually a familiar one in the late 18th century. Moore is arguing that women's scale of perception is smaller than men's. In other words, women particularize and are less able to generalize than men. Because women are more focused on the home and the domestic sphere, women are better able to see the particular that is, the individuals closest to them, whereas men, according to this view, have the ability to generalize and expand their perspective to the world as a whole. This is an important distinction, and we will revisit this notion when we get to Elizabeth Barrett Browning's verse novel, Aurora Lee, later in the Victorian period. In a famous passage from that novel, Browning's main character, Aurora Lee, and a male character named Romney have a famous disagreement over this very perception. 